This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Here you go. Here you go. Few. Few. Nothing personal. Word of the day is few. Not F-E-W. I'm putting a P-H in there, as in few. The Dodgers beat the Padres in a few game. Mm, That was an extra sort of saliva right there, if you're watching this. It's hard to say few. Few! You know, when you're running a baseball team, you put your team together, you know that when the season starts, the bullpen you have is not the bullpen that will be there at the end of the season. You know for a fact that if your team makes the playoffs, you're going to have to make a bullpen acquisition. You're going to have some people who are down in the minor leagues to start the season. Young guys, fresh arms, we're going to come up. You know that if you're in the playoffs, it means that somebody has outperformed. Every offseason, you try to name a closer. You try to have a closer. The Marlins, we used to have a different closer every year, and it worked back in the days of Armando Benitez and Joe Borowski. We had Leo Nunez, but that's not his name. Juan Carlos Oviedo became his name once they realized that he had stolen the name Leo Nunez to act like he was younger back in the days when the Dominican was the wild, wild west in terms of birth certificates and age. But then you sign closers to long-term deals, whether it's Heath Bell or Kenley Jansen or Araldis Chapman. And you hope that these closers can perform year in and year out. But what we've learned as velocity in baseball has increased in the old days, when you had a pitcher like a Matt Lindstrom, who the Marlins had, who could throw a hundred and fastball was his only pitch. We got him from the Mets in, in some, some trade we did many, many years ago, didn't really have a secondary pitch, ended up having a career, not a very good career, but not a terrible career. Now you've got players throwing 99, 100, 98, 99, 100. If you can't throw that, you generally aren't in a bullpen. You have entire bullpens who that's all they throw. The Tampa Bay Rays, basically anyone they throw out there is throwing 98 or above. It's just amazing. And that, of course, takes away the necessity to have a named closer with a long-term contract. So the Dodgers... Back when Kenley Jansen was a free agent, the Marlins made offers to Kenley Jansen and to Araldis Chapman. They were both free agents at the same time. And we wanted to get a long-term closer. And we felt as though these were the two best closers on the market. And we made offers to Jansen and to Chapman. And both of those guys decided to stay where they were. And I remember that the guys who run the Dodgers and the guys who run the Yankees were annoyed that we had bid up the price because 
Jensen wanted to stay in L.A. because he had a family issue, wanted to be near his family and his child who was in L.A. And Chapman wanted a better opportunity to win, I guess. And it turns out he was right to be on the Yankees instead of the Marlins at that time, at least. Although they clearly have not won a World Series. And so they signed these long-term deals with their teams. And the way it works now with pitchers is when you're throwing 98, 99, 100, the reason why these pitchers are not getting and should not get long-term deals is that velocity goes away as these pitchers get older. There's only so many times the arm can throw a hundo. At some point, it just stops. Even Chapman rarely gets to triple figures anymore. And back when he started in Cincinnati, I think was his first team many years ago, he was throwing a buck two, buck three, buck one, every pitch. So Kenley Jansen of the Dodgers is supposed to finish up Dodgers games. That's his job. He's the closer. He was so effective for so many years, just lights out. When Jansen was in the game, it was over. You just knew it. It was like Eric Gagne on the Dodgers, but without the steroids. So this year, Jansen has been fine last year. Okay. Not the way that he was in the beginning of his career. Trending, I would say, dare I say, down. And when you're in the playoffs, people have said to me who are not in the game, they say, man, you need to have that lockdown bullpen with that lockdown closer because the closer will be the most important pitcher you have during the playoffs. And I would always say to people who said that, that's just not accurate, actually. Because by the end of a season, 162-game season, your closer is completely done. People may not remember when the Marlins won the World Series, our closer was Ugeth Urbina, who we acquired midseason in a trade deadline deal with the Texas Rangers. Braden Looper was our closer to start the season. Then for the second half of the season, after we got Urbina, Urbina closed, Looper set him up. In the postseason, Urbina blew a bunch of saves. The most important pitchers in a postseason series are actually your starting pitchers and your starting pitchers in the back end of the rotation who became bullpen arms. And every year, there'll be a pitcher. I was watching uh, the Astros lose to the Athletics yesterday, and they've got a pitcher named Matzik who played in the Independent League. He didn't have a job. He was out of baseball for years. Now he's their most dependable long-term, long-term meaning multi-inning reliever. And bullpen arms are just hard to project year over year. So last night, Kenley Jansen gets himself in the game. It is a very tight game, Dodgers-Padres. A series where we've agreed that the Dodgers are going to win the series. They did win game one. I believe we have that as our pick of the day. And last night's game was a spectacular game with Cody Bellinger robbing Tatis of a home run. Tatis, the most exciting young player in the game. Not the best young player, the most exciting young player in the game. I said those words purposefully. You know, I'm nothing personal. Every word is purposeful. And Tatis hits a go-ahead home run, except Bellinger catches at the wall. It's a great play if you haven't seen it. He catches it over the wall, actually, and the Dodgers have the lead. Yada, yada. Jansen's in to save the game in the ninth inning. And uh, this is after Kershaw started, gave up a few home runs. He went, I think, six innings, three runs. Not a dominating performance, but not terrible. I mean, Ordinary is what I would say. Below average for someone like Kershaw. Ordinary for anyone else. So Jansen does not make it through the ninth inning. 
Dave Roberts, the manager of the Dodgers, does what managers will tell you is the most unpleasant thing that they have to do as manager. It's not sending a player down to the minor leagues. It's not releasing a player. It's not trading a player. It's not going to get your starting pitcher after he gives up six runs in the first inning or can't get out of the third inning. The most disappointing, difficult thing that a manager does is when he goes out, hits his right arm, showing the bullpen he's going for a righty, hits his left arm, showing he's going for a lefty, takes the long walk to the pitcher's mound and pulls his closer who cannot get through a safe situation or keep a game tied at home when closers come in in a tie game, in a tie situation. So Dave Roberts makes the decision, I'm, I'm going to get Jansen. Not a surprising decision. In a five-game series, game two to the winner of game one is like a game five. You really want to win game two and be up to nothing in a five-game series because you have an opportunity then only where you need one of three. It's not impossible to get swept three straight, but the odds are you win and you're up 2 zero. You're going to be fine in that series. So he goes and he gets him. In comes Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly walks, walks, and finally gets Eric Hosmer to end the game. And the Dodgers win what was a great game. Joe Kelly, remember, is the guy who made faces. I Coke, I'm completely forgetting who he made faces to um, when he walked off the mound. Um, that famous mem of him making the baby face. Was that against Tatis and the Dodgers? Oh, Correa, of course. Correa and the Astros. Thank you. So that same Joe Kelly comes in, gets the save. Not a very good save. It was sort of a white knuckle save. And I was thinking to myself that... What does Dave Roberts do in game three today in a safe situation? And when you're in baseball, it's a very simple equation and a simple answer. You go and you give the ball to Jensen, regardless that his splits have gotten worse over the years. Remember how unhittable he was from 14 to 17? I mean, just on absolutely unhittable. And since then, his ERA is, you know, mid threes. And uh, before that, it was low twos. But you go with him because in the playoffs, you are going to go with your closer. But the leash is what changes the length of leash, the size of leash. And there are no hurt feelings. So while it's not something that Dave Roberts wants to do or any manager wants to do, They are there to win their first ring since 1988. And if they have to bruise Kenley Jansen's ego, then they're going to bruise Jensen's ego. And that's just how it's going to be. So the second thing that a manager has to do when he pulls a closer the way Roberts did is not after the game that night, but the next day, managers and general managers will always go up to that closer and just have a talk. Make sure that the guy, that his mental state is right. Make sure he understands why the decision was made. Make sure he's ready to get the ball the next day. There's no game when you're watching a game and the announcers say to you, yeah, we're not sure who is available in the bullpen tonight. We're not sure if Jensen's available to go three in a row. Let's say he were going three in a row. 
the manager is sure, the president is sure, and the GM is sure. We have our bullpen plan every single game. We know who's available. We know who's not available. We don't tell the media because we don't want the media to tell the other team because we want the other team to have to plan for our entire bullpen. So we keep it secretive. It's not exactly a state secret. It sounds crazy that I'm even saying that word secretive, but we try to keep it secretive to gain some semblance of a competitive advantage. But tonight, if there's a safe situation to clinch the series, Kenley Jensen will definitely get the ball. And everyone on the Dodgers let out a collective few after the win last night. The the second to late game was uh, a pretty interesting game between the Yankees and the Rays. How about Giancarlo Stanton? We talked about him in yesterday's show, I think. I think we did a whole thing about Stanton, that he is just on fire. And uh, when he gets this way, there's no stopping him. He hit another home run. He now has Yankee records for most home runs in a row. I think five postseason games in a row. He's tied for the most home runs in a single postseason. This is in the storied franchise history. We're talking an unprecedented number of home runs, even in a year when the true outcome of walk, strikeout, and home run is the way of baseball. Stan with six home runs and 13 RBIs. Is it true, Coca? that he has more home runs this postseason than he had all of either last season or this season with the Yankees because of all his injuries. Would that be an amazing stat if Stanton in five playoff games hit more home runs than he did in all the 2020 season? I think that may be true. I think it may be true that that's more than he hit in all of 19 because he was out for so long. That may be true as well. Coke is going to tell me right now that he had seven home runs in the past two regular seasons combined. Is that combined? Now, how do you get to 500 home runs in your career? If you have seven home runs in two regular seasons, Coca, is that combined? Cause that's amazing. That means he's one home run away. It is combined. He's one home run away from matching his last two regular seasons. It goes to show you when he's healthy, it's great, but the Yankees didn't win. The Yankees' backs are against the wall. They're down now two games to one in a five-game series. But don't worry. They can bring back Garrett Cole today on three days rest. Oh, wait a minute. No, they can't. There's no off day. (gasps) MLB's scheduling of five straight days for the division series has totally screwed the Yankees exactly the way we told you it would screw them. They had to win game one, which they won with Cole. Cole can only come back in a game five. But guess what? There may not be a game five. In 2003, there was a five-game series between the Marlins and the Giants. Who remembers who started game one for the San Francisco Giants? Raise your hand if you're sure. Jason Schmidt. He was really good at that time. Started game one and beat us. He was great that year. I don't know what his stats were. I can't remember, but I can just tell you he was a dominant pitcher for the Giants. Saved him for game five. Philippe Alou did. Coca, do you think there's a chance? I didn't tell you I was going to tell you tell you about this because I didn't think of it during our pre-show. I do not believe that Jason Schmidt started game four for the San Francisco Giants when they were down two to one because that would have been on short rest. So I believe they saved Jason Schmidt for game five of the division series, but there was no game five because the Marlins won it in four. 
The Yankees don't have a choice but to save Garrett Cole for game five, because even that'll be on short rest because of no off days. They're forced to go now with Jordan Montgomery to save their season. When Stanton is the single most feared pitcher, Jerome Williams started game four. Yes, he did. We were so happy when they didn't bring back Schmidt on short rest in game four. I totally remember that. And he lasted like an inning or something. And it was great. And uh, any case, the schedule has really made it so the Yankees have a problem. And it's not great for MLB. It's not the end of the world for the Rays to advance uh, because if the Rays play the Astros, MLB will want the Astros to win. But it would have been far better to have the Yankees play the Astros, obviously, and then far better for either the Yankees or Astros to play the Dodgers in the World Series. That is the ultimate World Series matchup. But in a season where ratings are down for all sports, and we've, we had a whole segment on that earlier this month or this week, it may have been this week even, it'll be who it'll be in this crazy 20. But the Yankees being down two to one is in large part because they've got a pitching problem. The Rays are a better team. We told you that, but they have a pitching problem. And it goes back to game two when they did the opener with Garcia, then came back with Jay Happ, a subject that's been well covered. What I found very interesting is that Alex Rodriguez, the former Yankee and the never was going to be Met owner, but came close, has uh, he's now a, a TV analyst announcer for he does some ESPN work. He does some Fox work. He does all this work. He absolutely crushed Brian Cashman in the media, gave some comments about Cashman and uh, the decision to go with the opener. And Brian Cashman said something about it that is incredible to me. And it shows the Yankees have a problem and they're in a little bit of a panic. When Brian Cashman was asked about the decision to open with Garcia and then follow with Jay Happ and then have Tanaka in three and then have to have Montgomery in four, his answer is that it was an organizational decision, except Aaron Boone had the final say. Cash. Come on, man. Aaron Boone didn't have the final say. You did not give your manager the final say of whether or not they're going to use an opener strategy in game two of the division series against the favored Rays you had lost seven out of 10 games to in this truncated regular season. Organizational decisions involve the manager sometimes, not always. They involve the owner, the president, the GM, the head of player development, You get together with your top lieutenants and you think about the pros and cons of a decision you're going to make. Guess who has the final decision? One of two people only, the owner or the president of baseball operations who use the president as a go-between. The owner uses the president to try to get the president of baseball ops to do what the owner wants. The president of baseball operations uses the president to get the owner to do what the president of baseball operations wants. The president's in a position to try to figure out what's best and to try to figure out when there's a disagreement, which direction to go. But there is no scenario. Even the story I told you about Josh Beckett pitching in game six of the World Series, where Jack McKeon will tell you and did on a show I did with him and and has always told me I was starting Josh Beckett no matter what. That's bravado, old school manager talk. Managers can't do that. They cannot start someone just because they want to. They cannot start someone even though the organizational decision is to do something else. It doesn't work that way. 
the starting pitcher of a game is determined by the organization with the final decision of the owner, president, baseball operations head, period, hard stop. Why would Cashman sell him out? It literally makes no sense to me. I feel like he's getting nervous. I feel like he's worried that he only has a year left on his deal and maybe thinks going to the Mets may be smart of him now. Maybe he realizes that not winning a World Series since 09, though they've had tremendous regular season success. They have a hugely high payroll. They have an owner in George Steinbrenner's son, Hal Steinbrenner, whose view is we got to win a ring. We got to get to the World Series and then we got to win a ring. If the Yankees lose in the division series, it is not a slam dunk that the Yankees do not move on from Brian Cashman. He has been a staple, a steadying hand with the New York Yankees organization for decades. Literally. An unprecedented amount of stability in that organization in the front office. But at some point, it's a results business, especially in New York with that payroll. And when Brian Cashman starts blaming the manager or saying the manager has final say, if I'm the owner of that team or the president, I'm thinking, wow, we may have to make some moves here. We may have to make some moves. Will it happen? Hmm. Hmm. Wait to see. I don't know if it's my official wait to see. You'll have to wait to see if it's a wait to see. You know, what's going on with all these rookies? All these rookies are making their major league debuts during the playoffs. Every day we hit, we see a different one. Started with the Twins when they started that guy in the outfield, Alex Kirilov. We talked about him on the show. Hit a couple balls hard, but nothing else. Then there was a pitcher for the Rays a couple of days ago. His name was uh, um, Rue McClanahan, and, and he made his debut and he's really good, but he had never really pitched above single A, I think. Then we had two days ago, David Weathers' son, Ryan Weathers. Remember David Weathers? David Weathers, good guy, actually. Pitched for a bunch of teams. His son is already playing Major League Baseball, made his Major League debut. What's going on? Why is this happening? Well, I want to explain to you why you're seeing this more and how significant this is for also what's going on in the minor leagues. So the background of the minor leagues, you're very well aware, right? You're aware that there's contraction going on, meaning that affiliated teams are now becoming unaffiliated. An affiliated team is a minor league team that is associated with the major league team. The number of affiliated teams is being reduced. Major League Baseball is starting the process of taking over operation of minor league baseball. It's going to happen under Commissioner Rob Manford's sort of one baseball initiative where he wants all the power smartly to rest under the umbrella of major league baseball smartly. Teams are going to have fewer minor league teams associated with them. Teams will therefore have fewer minor league players, fewer of the dreck, more of the real prospects. When you call up your prospects is always based on service time, money, the day of the month, often based on perceived readiness. And I say perceived readiness because the way it works is you call your head of player development, the people responsible for making minor leaguers, major leaguers. Hey, do you think, uh, you know, is Ryan Weathers ready? You think he's ready? And then the development guy says, well, 
I think he's, you know, he could use some more time. But I think, you know, if you need him, he's ready. Remember, any employee in player development is measured by the success of the players in the minor leagues at the major league level. No one in player development gets a raise, a bonus, or a promotion because their minor league teams win games. They get raises, promotions, and more money, which is the same as a raise. There was a third thing I said in there. Raises, promotions, or something. We're not scripted here. When you get minor league players to the big leagues, because you then get to say, yes, we produce seven big leaguers. We produce 12 big leaguers. If the big leaguers don't perform at the big league level, we blame either the big league staff or the scouting department who scouted wrong, thinking that the players they drafted would become big leaguers. We don't blame the player development people when players at the big league level don't do well. We blame people at the player development level when players don't develop and are never thought of as players to be called up and pitch or play position players. The reason why you're seeing more people and more players make their debut is that there were no minor leagues this season. There were only alternative training sites. They were called ATSs, alternative training sites. Alternate training sites, I think, is what they were actually called, ATS. And those ATS were in close proximity to the major league field. So take a team like the Marlins, where they play in Miami. Their ATS was in Jupiter, Florida. So their president of baseball operations, Mike Hill, could go back and forth in a day. You can see what's going on at your ATS, see what's going on in your big league camp, in your big league home. All teams were able to do this, which means the major league baseball executives did not need to rely on anybody in development. They didn't need to rely on anybody. They had eyes on their minor leaguers and what was going on at those ATS. So when general managers, president baseball operations, are making decisions with ownership and the manager and the coaching staff about how to formulate this roster for a postseason, you have a better idea of all players available to you. In addition, this year, there are 28 people on the roster for the first time ever. It's always been 25. That's three extra roster spots that exist. So there is a unique opportunity for players who really have no experience to make the roster to be the 28th man, JIC. The risk of calling up players early and having them pitch in a playoff game is that if they're not mentally strong enough, you could be screwing with their whole career. And I know of what I speak because I've screwed so many careers that you'd think that was my profession. Not purposefully, obviously. We never brought someone up hoping that they'd fail. You know, there was a guy we brought up. Oh, God, I don't remember his name. So someone will have to go back and tell me. We called up a minor league pitcher when Jack McKean was the manager. And McKeon was annoyed that we called up this young person because he wanted us to have more experience, better players, because he wanted to win. And he felt that we didn't have the best opportunity to win. So once a player is called up and he's on the roster, Jack McKeon, <laughs> I love you, Jack. 
He put this pitcher in to make his major league debut with the bases loaded against a team and against a hitter who was really, really good. I want to say could have been in Wrigley Field. I want to say could have been, again, it was, I don't remember. I'm going to find out for you guys and try to get back to you at another show. But managers can put pitchers in positions to fail, which can totally screw up that person's career. The way these players are being used now, these rookies, are in very high leverage situations, which means they are moments that matter. You could argue that every moment matters in a playoff game, and I would argue to you that it's not that. It's that even in every game, there are really, really big moments and then mediocre moments and then, ah, this moment, you know, it's a playoff game, but it's the least of the important moments. What I'm going to be watching for is the careers of Shea McClanahan and Alex Kirilov and Ryan Weathers and anyone else who makes a major league debut in the playoffs because we won't know the impact on that player until next year or the year after. You know, we've got all of these playoff games. We've got four more. We have four elimination games today, October 8th, 2020. Today is uh, Thursday the 8th. Four elimination games is unbelievable in this round. I think last week in the wild card, we had a day with a bunch of elimination games as well, maybe five. It's just quite exciting to have a quadruple header. And what I noticed that was really striking to me about these games is the number of TBDs. So for gambling purposes, you have to announce your starting pitcher. You have to announce your lineup to MLB. MLB then disseminates the lineup and then people can gamble. There used to be competitive reasons, which I always thought was a bunch of crap, where you hold off saying who's going to start so the other team can't prepare, and you play all these games, and it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter. It's not like football, where you need like a week to put in a game plan against a team. It's not like that. But in any case, the starting pitching today, so many to be determined, and we're only in a game three for two of them and game four for two others. There are teams which don't even have three starting pitchers, three legitimate real starting pitchers. Like the Cincinnati Reds started with Trevor Bauer and then went to Luis Castillo and then went to Sonny Gray, except they got swept so they didn't even have to go to Sonny Gray. The Marlins had Sandy Alcantara and then they went to Pablo Lopez and today they go to Sixto Sanchez. Those are three legitimate major league starting pitchers. It's not that the game has passed me by because I'm not willing to acknowledge that. There's something we're doing wrong in development of these pitchers that we can't find enough of them to have a reasonable starting staff, to have a reasonable playoff rotation. There is a problem where teams believe you don't need that as part of the new analytics you can do bullpen games. When guys are throwing 98, they can each do two innings, one and, one and a third. You're going to be fine. The way to win in the postseason and to get a ring is to have strong starting pitching, a strong bullpen, and a great offense. <laughs> Why do I have that as a note? The way to win in the postseason is to have great starting pitching, a great bullpen, and a great offense. I should have mentioned also a great defense. The way to win a ring is to just have the best team in every area of baseball. That is a ridiculous comment. Let me, it was, are you sure? Logan Kenzing, it could have been 
uh, Coke is getting back to the Marlins player who came in with the bases loaded. Find out what Logan Kensian's and it very well may be him. What was his first batter faced? I don't think that's who it was. His first start against the Cubs was a disaster. We brought him in to start. I think it was a game. It was in Wrigley. He went two innings pitched and he got rocked. But that and it sort of did screw with his career. But I don't think that's the pitcher I'm thinking of who came in and faced bases loaded immediately as a reliever to make his major league debut. It could be Logan when, but I don't think so. I think Logan's debut was against the Cubs as a starter. Anyway, so to win a ring, you do need pitching, starting, bullpen, offense, defense, et cetera. But to me, in order, it's starting pitching. It is defense. It is bullpen. It is offense. That's the order. I want those four things. So we'll see how the TBDs do today. Someone will take the ball at the top of the first and bottom of the first inning. Somebody will. I guarantee it. Could there be some series ending today? The Dodgers can finish off the Padres. The Rays can finish off the Yankees. The Astros can finish off the A's. And the Braves can finish off the Marlins. Other than that, there's nothing going on today in the world of baseball. When we come back, I want to talk about how far is too far. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. I want to talk about a documentary I watched. Uh, This was the other day. It was called The Amazing Jonathan. (coughs) Excuse me. The mute button's a little further away at this moment. I couldn't quite get to it. That was an in-my-elbow cough. Don't worry. NCH. Got that one? NCH? No COVID here. So The Amazing Jonathan is a documentary about a magician named The Amazing Jonathan. He's all over YouTube. He's got a bunch of videos. He is a, uh, an illusionist. He's a prankster. He's a very interesting guy. He reminds me of Christian Bale, not aesthetically in any way. His character in a movie called The Prestige. The Prestige is a movie with Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman and Scarlett Johansson and Rebecca Hall, as I recall. That was the foursome. And David Bowie, I believe, was in that movie as well playing Tesla. And it's a movie where in order to be a master illusionist, you have to live your part 
when the cameras are rolling and you have to live your part when there are no cameras rolling. It becomes your life. The illusion is your life. Joaquin Phoenix did it when his documentary, remember when he went on Letterman and said he was retiring, he grew that crazy beard. He said he was never going to act again. This was all part of a movie he did and he played the character when cameras were on, when cameras are off, that was his character. The Amazing Jonathan does the same thing, except in this movie, it's a documentary about him and his sickness. See, apparently he was supposed to die. His heart was supposed to stop working, like poof, just stop working, and he would drop dead. Maybe even during a show, he was told. He ended up living in, I don't know where he lives, Arizona, Vegas, somewhere. And he wasn't able to perform. He... Did not die, but he's on all sorts of medicine. He is a drug addict, a meth addict, I believe. And the documentary is about his life. And the documentary takes a very weird turn when the filmmaker starts to believe that Jonathan, the amazing Jonathan, has been playing the filmmaker the entire time. Where it's possible that the amazing Jonathan is not even sick. And one of the hooks of the documentary was how the amazing Jonathan got dealt with his sickness, continued his career, how he dealt with his life as a major performer who had a major fatal sickness. Is it too far for an illusionist or for a prankster to do a prank where people start giving you time, giving you money, giving you attention because they feel sorry for you because you have a disease when you don't have that disease? My answer is yes. I can't tell you for sure whether Amazing Jonathan is sick and dying. I just can't. Only he knows. Maybe his wife, but I doubt it. Only he knows. At the end of the documentary, you find out that only he knows. It got me thinking about all of the people who for a living try to be funny and interesting. And I'm one of them. I try to be funny. I admit it. I try to be clever. I admit it. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I try to do a a a, let people know what I'm trying to do, say, or think, or portray. But this is too far. Too far. The amazing Jonathan's documentary. Watch it and tell me if you agree. Okay. I want to talk for a minute here about uh, the Titans. The Tennessee Titans have a situation that is going on that is causing me to really question whether or not it's true that the National Football League's Player Association is the weakest union in history. We already know that MLBPA, the Major League Baseball Player Association, has the strongest union. We know that NFL contracts are not guaranteed. We know that NFL owners are making money hand over fist on both an annual operating basis and an asset valuation increase point of view. But we got a COVID situation this year where revenue's down, no fans in the stands. We've got an outbreak with the Titans. They had more positive tests today. It's official. The Titans are screwed. Their outbreak has not been contained. If any of those players are positive from the players who violated the league's rule and went to practice at that school, purportedly without anyone knowing, which we talked about yesterday is nothing personal. If that's the case, 
There will be fines levied at a level that I didn't even contemplate. There may be punishment up to including a forfeiture. I really believe it's now possible. I didn't believe that NFL would make a team forfeit. I really didn't. And I still can't imagine that they're going to do it. The Titans have a game this weekend against the Bills. I don't know how the Titans play this weekend. It's already Thursday. There's no way they're practicing today legally. If their new positive tests come from any players who practiced illegally, it's a complete screw the pooch situation. That's it. Episode 232, Coca, and I worked in screw the pooch. Took me 232 to work that in. Yeah, we got it. You knew we would. So the Titans not being able to practice Thursday will be in violation of the Coca rule. The Coca rule states that no NFL team can play a game without having had the benefit of a minimum of two practices. If there's no practice Thursday, which is today, which there's not, then the earliest they can practice is tomorrow, which is Friday. Maybe they could practice the day before a game, but you're going to practice with pads the day before a game. It's not going to happen. So that's one day of practice prior to a game. Violation of the COCA rule, no game. So the NFL said, we understand the COCA rule. What we're going to do is move the game to Monday or Tuesday. And I talked about this a little bit on the local hour of the Lebertard show uh, just today, Thursday, the 8th. You can download Nothing Personal and subscribe and tell your friends. Also, you can listen to me on the local hour today, talk about a bunch of issues, including cult leaders and sex with cult leaders, which is always a fun issue to talk about. But I find it very difficult to fathom that a punishment for the COCA rule is going to be that the Titans will be forced to forfeit a game. Now, people are saying on Twitter that this is a major issue if the Bills have to play Monday or Tuesday because the Bills would then have a turnaround to play next Thursday against the uh, Chiefs. Now, that's a big game next Thursday. It's a big national game. You can't play Monday or Tuesday and then play Thursday. But then the Bills would simply have to move their game with the Chiefs to the following weekend. There are myriad possibilities when you are going to be flexible with your schedule, which is what we told you on nothing personal is going to happen. The NFL is going to have to be flexible with the schedule. But what is staggering to me is that there are rumors coming out that if the Titans are forced to forfeit, which is spoken and written incorrectly, you cannot force a team to forfeit. The Titans may not be available to play, but it's the NFL who would have to impose the forfeit on the Titans. What the rumor is, is that if that game is forfeited and the Bills go to 5-0 with a 2-0 victory over the Titans in order to protect the Thursday night game against the Chiefs, and because the NFL doesn't want to flex another week in Week 18 and take off the bye week in between Championship Sunday and Super Bowl Sunday, the rumor is that the Buffalo Bills, the 5-0 and Buffalo Bills, having just won a game two to nothing, will not get their game check for that game. The cows must be jumping over the moon because I am so firmly on the side of the players in this case, I can't even tell you. And it's not cow jumping over the moon. The truth is, I'm nothing personal. I'm a little more partial than I get credit for just because I have 18 years of executive experience. I don't always side with management. I don't. It's not even close here. You are going to penalize a team 
forget the competitive disadvantage of, of that Ben Roethlisberger was talking about and how much the Steelers are angry that their schedule was screwed with. Whatever, it's 2020. You just got to be flexible. But to not pay the bills, pun intended, because of the actions of another team or the simple misfortune or bad luck of another team, and the quirk of the schedule that has you playing that team that day and then another team four days later. As a union, you cannot allow that hard stop. There is no scenario under which the NFL Players Association can allow, not one scenario, that they can allow their Bills players, members of their union, not to get paid if the NFL forces a forfeit to protect its damn schedule and make sure there's a Thursday night game against the Chiefs. As an owner, hey, we're 5-0, and oh, we'll take it. You think the other people in the, NF- in the AFC East will be happy or the AFC for playoff position will be happy that the Bills get a win like that out of forfeit? You just cannot let it happen. But there's a rule that people are calling on in social media and all over sports media this morning that the collective bargaining agreement states the new, under the new COVID protocols, that teams do not have to pay players for canceled games. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, when the COVID protocols and the CBA was amended to reflect the year of COVID, canceled games is referring to the fact that the season would be shortened or canceled. It'd be a 10-game season, not a 16-game season. Or it would be no season, not a 16-game season. There were not talking about What would happen if the NFL imposed under its new stricter COVID protocols a forfeit? You heard it here. It's not even a wait to see. It's simply not going to happen. The Buffalo Bills, if they are not allowed to play and it does end up a forfeit, which it won't, the Buffalo Bills will get paid. All right, nothing personal pick of the day. It's ridiculous. The Astros lost to the A's were 24 and 18. You know what? I'm just annoyed enough and stubborn enough that I'm going with the Astros again to close it out. I'm going to keep going. The Astros are going to the LCS. I'm telling you that right now. I picked them over the A's. They're going to win. Well, I did pick them in five. I should be rooting for five, but I'm not because I'm telling you the Astros will win tonight, today, whenever. Astros over the Athletics were 24 and 18 because the Astros lost the Athletics yesterday. All right, to close the show, I just want to say that all the talk about the fly on Mike Pence's head and everyone making fun of the fly on the vice president's head as part of the debate. Wouldn't it be amazing if we lived in a country where we were discussing the issues and we were able to have intellectual discourse on things that are going on that impact our lives, like minimum wage, like health care, like immigration, like COVID, like the economy? like the makeup of the Supreme Court, things that will impact us. That's what should be debated. That's what should be discussed. And that's what you should use to inform yourself how to vote. A fly landed on a guy's head with gray hair. And it's like the world came to a stop because people on the left side said that just shows that he's so full of shit that flies land on him. Whether he is or not, why don't we take the time to ignore ridiculous things that nobody can control and criticize and discuss real things that people can control that they say anyway. 
We live in a country where right now we have an election in less than a month and we're talking about a fly on someone's hair. We have a country right now with so much business to do. It's hard to imagine that we're still doing everything in such a personal way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.